But as, as private activity bond volume began to get oversubscribed, and to, if you look back at the charts, it started in 2016, and now 85 or 90% of the private activity bonds in all 16 volume limited categories, it's taken up by housing, single family and multifamily. And within that, about 85 to 90% is multifamily housing. Welcome to Buzz House, a bank utility podcast where you can find all the buzz around multifamily housing. I'm Don Bernards, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. And I'm Garrett Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly, also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the country. Each week, we'll bring you a guest or a topic in the multifamily housing industry that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. We are very excited to welcome into the Buzz House today, Wade Norris, a partner at the law firm Norris, George, and Astro. Uh, many of our listeners may be very familiar with Wade, who is truly, truly a leader in the tax and bond finance field. You know, not only, of course, for working on over 3,000 bond financings, looking at Wade's resume, which is absolutely incredible, but more, I think what's just so exciting, Wade, is you've been a, a major, played a major role in many of the innovative uh, bond strategies we've seen, you know, over the last you know decade or so, including a couple of the bond financing products we're going to be talking about today, which are the use of tax exempt high yield bonds to create uh, workforce housing for both uh, public and the public sector, and also five hundred one c three borrowers. So really excited, Wade, for you to join us today. And with that, we're going to jump into our discussion. And I have Garrick start the discussion. Garrick, thanks, Don and Wade. We're we're obviously grateful to have you on uh, the Buzz House podcast. Um, before we get into some questions, why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know a little bit about the work you do and who your clients are? Sure. Uh, thank you, Garrett. Well, we are a boutique, a Washington, D.C.-based boutique law firm. Uh, we specialize in the tax-exempt debt side of uh, multifamily housing, affordable rental projects. Uh, that's uh, by and large what we do. That's probably 80, 85 percent of our practice. And we do it all over the United States in a given year we'll probably touch 35 states give or take and very very focused we mainly in in representing clients on the tax exempt debt side of the affordable multifamily rentals uh, they really fall into two categories number one we represent uh, underwriting firms broker dealer firms and public offerings of tax exempt multifamily housing bonds we help develop the short-term cashback program that is used widely with FHA loans and rural development loans. We played a major role in the development of Fannie Mae MTEBS product. Uh, we played a major role in the development of Freddie Max Tell product. And so we tend to innovate. We tend to help uh, major players create new products in the space. And we then represent the underwriters and publicly offered deals, or as you know, probably 65 to 75% of the $21 billion a year of private activity bonds for multifamily housing are typically private placements. And so we also represent eight or 10 major banks who are uh, players in that space acquiring tax exempt debt and private placements. We have 10 lawyers, five financial analysts, paralegals, total headcount of about 20 people. And we've been doing this, our people who are involved in it, I've been doing this for longer than I'm willing to admit to anyone listening in on this call, but it's a matter of decades, not years, <laughs> but we enjoy it. We're very focused on it. 
Uh, and we not only enjoy innovating in this space and helping our clients bring new products to the market and close these transactions, but we enjoy the end result it does for the people who so desperately need affordable rental housing in the United States today. The need gets bigger, as we all know, every year. Thanks for that that intro. That's uh, it. Sounds like you have a nice tight knit team there, and that's great. Well, let's let's kick off the questions. So, wait, as Don noted, you know, we want to focus the discussion today around the work you're doing in the 501c3 bond space, along with the uh, essential function bonds. So, would you be able to give a sort of a high level overview of these bonds and how you've seen them in the housing space? Sure. No, I'd, I'd be glad to, Garrett. Well, if you turn the clock back three or four years, pretty much everything that was going on in the tax-exempt multifamily housing bond or loan space was private activity bonds for profit-motivated sponsors using 4% tax credit equity. As we all know, on that type of financing, one can syndicate the tax credit equity for 35 or 40% of total development costs, so it closes a huge gap in the financing that you otherwise have. And until three or four or five years ago, that was pretty much everything that was going on in the taxes and multifamily debt space. But as, as private activity bond volume began to get oversubscribed, and to, if you look back at the charts, it started in 2016, and now 85 or 90 percent of the private activity bonds in all 16 volume limited categories, it's taken up by housing, single family and multifamily. And within that, about 85 to 90% is multifamily housing. So as bond volume became more and more scarce, especially in high growth states like California, Texas, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, you, around the country, as bond volume became oversubscribed, then obviously people who are trying to address this need, the investment bankers, the bankers, et cetera, began to look at, okay, what are other ways we can do this? And there are two other types of multifamily housing debt that are allowed under the Internal Revenue Code, aside from tax-exempt private activity bonds under 142D with 4% tax credits. One is, if you have a 501c3 borrower, Section 145 of the code allows you to issue a governmental unit to issue tax-exempt bonds, loan the proceeds to the C3 borrower, and there's no private activity bond volume requirement on that type of deal. Now, the bad news is you don't qualify for 4% tax credit. So that's a, we have to fill gaps on those deals, but it's something we've begun to do and begun to look at. The third category, which frankly was there was almost no activity to speak of outside of major cities that have big subsidy funds is what we call essential function or governmental purpose bonds for affordable multifamily housing. And this is where the owner is not a profit motivated party is in a 142D private activity deal. They're not a 501C3 corporation, but the owner of the project is a governmental entity. It's a housing authority, a city, a county, a joint powers authority, or a similar subdivision of a state actually not only issues the bonds, but actually owns the project as well. And within that category, we don't have to satisfy, the, the rules are very limited. The federal tax laws, if it's a governmental owner, are much, much less complex than under 142D and even under 145 for the C3 borrowers. There's no volume limitations and the other rules generally don't apply. But again, without an external funding source up until the recent past, which we'll talk about, these deals really weren't very significant and market conditions made it hard to do that type of deal. Perfect, Wade, thanks for that. That was a great overview uh, for our listeners. 
Wade, I know you, you, you were obviously working deeply in this industry, a lot of the banks and so forth. What does the underwriting or, or structuring, you know, look like around these bonds, including, you know, typical terms of its amortization or interest only periods or any unique terms compared to what, like you said, a lot of people are used to the private activity bonds. Are they similar? Are they differ? What, what are you seeing in today's market or even maybe a year or two ago or, or to, up to today kind of thing? Well, within the space overall, all three categories, if you look at what has evolved over the last two or three years, um, we're sort of unique as a law firm. We get very involved in the financial structure of the deals with our clients. A number of us have business finance backgrounds as well as legal backgrounds. And if you look at what's happened, a number of things have occurred over the last three to five years. Number one, the various players in this space who are taking the risk on the tax exempt debt have begun to accept longer amortization periods. Uh, it went from 30, 10 or 15 years ago to 35 years, now 40 years. We're beginning to see some 45 year amortization periods are just comfortable that there's such a demand for this sort of affordable rental housing. And of course, when you extend the amortization period, it greatly increases our loan proceeds. And so we've had developments like that. We do see some interest only periods, particularly on deals where we have stabilized uh, uh, properties where you're not doing new construction or major rehab. Terms like that have gotten more generous, if you will. As we've moved into the C3 space in the essential function, governmentally owned space in the last couple of years, they're really starting in the spring of 2019. There were, was a major development that started that has affected the C3 deals and the governmentally owned deals that have made them more feasible. Basically, if you look at, if you look at the muni bond market, it's a $450 billion a year market. Now, 30% of that are the tax-exempt municipal bond funds where people invest through a bond fund. And as they have money coming in, they have to put it to work. And if you look at the starting in 2019, we had major inflows to tax exempt muni bond funds. People were trying to get their money to work in debt product. The world was awash with cash and everyone was trying to put it to work. So these funds had money coming in at a rate of eight or 10 billion a month faster than it was going out the door. And so when you've got that money coming in, you've got to invest it. And it really drove the yields down on unrated high yield paper because the, the these are sophisticated buyers. They can do the real estate underwriting. They can accept the risk of buying a non-credit enhanced unrated bond. They're the most sophisticated buyers there are. And so they began to actually reach out. They, uh, Our underwriter clients actually started reporting three years ago that they were getting calls from the bond fund saying, what do you got for me? I need some paper. We need to put this money to work, you know, and, and we're, you know, unrated is fine. We want to make sure it's sound, but if it's a good model, we'll look at it for you, et cetera. So as that evolved over two years and in 2020 through the end of 21, we had substantial inflows to the mini bond funds. And so what happened as a result of that, some very creative people on the first deal of this essential function bond category for workforce housing was in April of 2019. And they realized that, look, we can actually raise money at a yield of three or three and a half, well, at that time, three and a half to 4%. We can go out and buy a privately owned class A or A minus apartment property at a, a cap rate of four and a quarter or 450. And if I can raise capital 
at a, at a rate of a yield of 375, I can not only pay the purchase price of the project to move it into governmental ownership from the private ownership today, but I can cover the cost of funding six or eight points of reserves that we put into these deals, and I can cover the cost of issuance of doing the deals. And so we actually had, and I've again, once again, I've been doing this for decades, not years, but in my career, I've almost never seen a, a time when you could get 100% financing for this type of project out of the debt side of the deal without someone write, writing a major check on the equity side. But the market conditions that we had actually created an environment where that was a possibility. So they began in California to do this in April of 19. These are large deals. Generally, these are two or 300 unit apartment properties. They're generally in your suburban cities outside of the major cities in California where this evolved, your peripheral cities, but where there's still a huge need for affordable workforce housing. The policemen, the firemen, the nurses, the school teachers cannot afford to live there. They're living 50 miles from their jobs. And so they began to say, yes, if we can actually acquire ownership of a property, we'll lower the rents about 10% to give lower rents. But if we can make this work, we'll sign on and do the deal. And so we began to see the deals. If you look at what has happened in California in 2019, 20, and 21, there were 45 of these financings that closed. There were $8 billion of tax-exempt bonds that were raised. What happens is when you put the project into public ownership, you create real estate tax exemption. And we use the extra cash flow from that to make the units affordable for people at 80%, 120% of area median income. So that's the basic dynamic here. By putting it into public ownership, we create the real estate tax exemption. We use the substantial freed up cash flow to make the units affordable for workforce housing, not 60% and below, but 80, 100, 120 in that category. But if you look at the 8 billion of bonds in those 45 issues, to put it in perspective, the whole country issues 21 billion of private activity multifamily bonds in a year. And that's in one state over two years, 8 billion of bonds for this new category of essential workforce housing bonds. And so we've now begun to do these in Texas. We closed our first deal there last December, the second deal in February, a third deal closed in March. We are closing the fourth deal there tomorrow, and we have another deal going into the market this coming week. And so it's really beginning to emerge in Texas, and I think you will then see it in other states where they have this same need. They have a robust economy that will support the model, and they have the same need for this. That was a lot, but that's interesting. Um, you know, it's yeah. I hope to see it sort of spread through through many other states. I, I think so, it will. Yeah, I mean, there there are a, a couple of things that drive it. Number one, you have to look at the real estate tax rate. Now, in Texas, where they have no state income tax, your millage rates are two percent or two point three percent per year. So, if you create real estate tax relief, you free up a lot of cash flow, and it helps you make deals work even in this market where yields on these bonds have gone from 3% in the summer of 2021 to above 6% today. But that we can still make the deals work where we have that sort of cash flow that we freed up to not only lower the rents and not only create an opportunity for the public entity to have 100% 
of the appreciation in the project in the next 15 or 30 years, but we can also make the deals work in a high yield environment. So, and if we, I believe we'll see even more of this, if we get a break in rates, they seem to be stabilizing a little. If we can get them to start coming down, I think we'll see even more of this uh, to come. That's great. We're, you know, Don and I are always uh, uh, discussing the rates and <laughs> watching and hopefully they go down. In that same vein, Wade, so, have you have you worked on on actual partnerships where the financing has been one of obviously these two products that that we're discussing, but perhaps where a for-profit entity brought the property forward to a nonprofit or government entity, and and what's unique around that specific structure? Well, that structure is done, and again, since 2015, that's been a widely used structure in Texas, for example. Uh, because in Texas, if you have at least 50% of the units that are below 80% of area median income, you can create the real estate tax relief. And, and you have to have another 40%, not greater than 120, and then 10% can be market rate as a general rule. But in Texas, the private developers can come in and provide the equity. And basically, they will bring the housing authority, the housing finance corporation into the partnership, make them a partner. They'll get 15 or 20% of the cash flow and residual in the deal. They'll actually take title to the property. They will assign it to the governmental entity who will then lease it back to the partnership, which creates the real estate tax relief. And you can do deals that way. And a lot of deals have been done that way. Now, when a deal is done that way, obviously you've got an equity partner in there supplying a major portion of equity capital. And not always, but some of those deals use tax exempt financing for if they satisfy the requirements under Section 142D, 2850, 4860, et cetera. But a number of those deals aren't necessarily in that category, they're middle income. In that case, generally, you'll just go out and get a taxable loan from Freddie Mac or some other taxable lender because you have a substantial equity component in the deal. Now, from the standpoint of the public entity, Number one, it is not nearly as complex as doing the 100% affordable deals that I've talked about, like we've done in California, and we've just begun to do in Texas, where the governmental entity owns 100% of the project from day one without writing a check. But th these deals are much more complex, harder to make them work, and those deals have been done for quite some time and quite effectively. I think there may be being discussed legislation in Texas that may limit that to a certain degree because it's become so widely used that the real estate tax foregone has become a, a more of a political issue. But uh, nonetheless, I think uh, a number of those deals will continue to be done under that very innovative structure in that state. Yeah, that and you know that's a good point because I worked on a couple of public facility corporation transactions and. Uh, you know, and as they they spread, you're right. It's the you're you're losing out on the the property taxes. So, I you know I don't know. Are they baking in pilots or I mean uh, other forms to spread that, you know, the funds to either the school districts who are who are likely missing that. I think, you know, frankly, because those often don't involve tax exempt debt, which is what we specialize in, we, we don't really get involved in a lot of those deals. We know how they work. We're around them. We know the players. But I think there are special arrangements often that are made that soften the blow for the real estate taxes foregone. And that's even true to a certain degree on the essential function deals that we do. Wade, you know, you touched on, right, a lot of the volume in California and Texas and, and, and touched on, hey, you know, maybe this can kind of, you know, be a, a tool around around the country. 
what are, you know, as, you know, maybe developers listening to us today or we know workforce housing is a need everywhere, right? We all know that. What are some right. risks or what, you know, is it is it borrowing? I, I assume these are mostly non-recourse. What are risks or how do you you educate a municipality that I want to own, you know, multifamily housing? You know, how sure. do you how do you start that discussion? Oh, no, that's that's a great question. Thanks, Don. And for the developers who are listening in today, yeah, I mean, you you got to ask yourself the question. I'm a developer. I, I know how to do that. I get a developer fee and I put money at risk, spend two or three years getting this thing ready to go if it's new construction. And then I get a big reward. You know, I get a 10 or 12 or 15 point developer fee because I've gone at risk in a major way over a two or three year period. Well, these deals generally don't work that way, but they do work. You actually have a more limited exposure, a shorter time frame involvement. The comp is lower, but there are opportunities in this space if you're a sophisticated development firm. And what we call the developer in these deals, these 100% affordable deals, and I'll talk about C3 ownership in a minute. You can do these types of deals with C3s as well. But nonetheless, um, uh, the, the developer, we call them the project administrator, okay? And what the developer does is they go out and they locate the property in the jurisdiction where they believe the housing authority, the housing finance corporation, or the city, the governmental entity, will be interested in doing this deal. And so they will negotiate, they'll work with an underwriter. The financial models on these deals are excruciatingly complex, but they will model the deal to make sure that at current interest rates and what we can do on the debt side, we think we can make this work and deliver it to the governmental owner and cover the reserves and the cost of doing the deal. And they'll make sure the governmental unit where the project is located is willing to play ball and interested in doing this. Uh, that's a big threshold question. But once they get a comfort level that, yes, it'll work and the governmental unit wants to do it, then what happens is they'll sign a purchase sale agreement with the current owner of the property. Again, most of this is not new construction, it's stabilized class A minus properties. They'll put down a point or a point and a half deposit. So the average deal size in California over the last three years was $138 million. So that's a lot of money, right? But they're gonna put up a point or a point and a half deposit. And the seller in a hot real estate market will give you 90 or 60 or 90 or 120 days to close. And so when you sign that purchase sale agreement, put up the deposit, then you're off to the races. And they'll do all the third party reports. They'll have all that ready to go. We'll run the model. And then boom, as soon as the city signs on or the HFC signs on, we're off to the races doing the documents and doing everything to get ready to market the bonds and close the deal. What do they get compensated? They'll get a point or two in cash up front. They generally take back junior subordinate tax exempt debt that is delivered to them at closing without payment by them as a portion of their fee for doing the deal. That may be four or 5% of the purchase price of the project. So it's four or five points on the deal. And they'll get an ongoing asset management role and fee where they'll collect maybe 10 or 12 basis points a year to work with the property manager. They're not the manager. We're going to hire a blue chip manager to run this to make the bond funds happy, but they'll work with them to funnel the financial information coming in once we close to the buy side. So they'll know how the projects are doing and they'll get paid a 10 or 12 basis point fee per year for doing it. So the bad news is it's not a 12 or 15 point developer fee, right? The good news is it's not two or three years, it's six months and you have less at risk, and the comp may be less, but it's still, if you know how to do it, and you put the time and effort into it, and you can move quickly, uh, it's, it's been viable. There are probably six or eight or 10 uh, development firms that have done this in a significant way. 
Very good. We really, really appreciate you joining us today on the Buzz sure. House. And I think I know our listeners are always looking for creative strategies to preserve affordable housing, create workforce housing. So I, we're very, Garrick and I have talked about this and very excited to, to continue the conversation and see, you know, again, spreading through other, other parts of the country. So, no, yeah, no, great. And uh, just a couple of closing things. And yeah, I know uh, uh, everyone yeah. is busy these days. But a big thing that has driven this has been that the bond funds have been willing to accept for the first time are modeling these transactions in strong markets, real estate markets, high growth markets like California and Texas, assuming a 3% per year increase in rents and expenses, not zero, not two and three. If I can assume three and three rather than zero, it expands my loan proceeds on a 35 or 40 year deal by 60%. If I can do three and three over 35 or 40 years instead of two and three on rent and expense growth assumptions, I can increase my proceeds 25% over two and three. So uh, that has helped us counteract the rise in interest rates that we've seen this past year by the fact that they're willing to accept that. And there's a soft principal amortization that we use in these deals where we don't use mandatory sinking funds or serial maturities. Basically, the bond funds have been willing to accept a model where we schedule amortization out of what is left after operating expenses and paying interest on the bonds. Whatever is left amortizes principal. But if you get behind in a six-month or a one-year period, no problem. As long as you catch it up, you'll, you'll be fine. You won't be in default. So those two things have helped on these deals, whether we've got a public owner or a C3 owner, uh, can, which can use this model, have really helped us make these deals viable, notwithstanding the increase in rates. Very exciting. Again, thanks, Wade, and the listeners, yep. thank you for tuning in today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. We'd love to chat with anyone who has an interest in the space. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Buzz House. To receive a notification when new episodes are available, please subscribe to Buzz House, a Baconelli podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out bakertilly.com. And if you have a suggested topic, please send them to build at bakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at bakertilly.com.